Welcome to the Carmen Murray Show, where we have conversations about 21st century business and culture. Here in the Murray Den, we'll open a window into a world of things that intrigue and inspire. Share stories of excitement, hope, bravery, courage, and resilience. And now, from the Solid Gold Studios, let's level up, lean in, and get Murray with your host, Carmen Murray, as we let curiosity lead us down new paths. Hey, 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 Future Fit Tribe, welcome to yet another episode on the Carmen Murray Show. I am absolutely excited about today. So I'm interviewing the author of The Power of Purpose. Now, the first thing that I thought about this book was, Oh my, we are going to have another book about business purpose that nobody seems to get right. This might be the time to challenge it. And then when I started introspecting and reading this book, it really struck a chord with me. And I want to read something that struck me in the, in the beginning. There's a quote by Neil Gaiman that says, the moment that you feel that just possibly you're walking down the street naked, exposing too much of your heart, and your mind and what exists on the inside, showing too much of yourself. That's the moment you might be starting to get it all right. And I think the moment I read that, I knew this is going to be a good story. So I just want to give you a little bit of context about Richard. So he has suffered three incidents of stage four brain cancer. He's been a survivor of this traumatic experience. And this book is an account of his fight against brain cancer, but more importantly, it's a vulnerable account of his story and also the struggle within the head. As we all know that when people go through this, this awful experience of cancer is that it really does mess with the head um, and your emotions, your anxiety, depression levels, etc. So I don't want to, to tell the story of, of Richard. I think it's time to introduce this man. He's so inspirational, global speaker. Let's get him in the house. Richard! Coleman, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to um, be chatting to you and thank you for the opportunity. Fantastic. So listen, let's start in the beginning of your life. So obviously you've gone through this process getting cancer, not once, not twice, but three times. Okay. That to me is like, like, you know, when the cat passes too many times, like, <laughs> nine, like nine lives. There you go. I want to go back a step in your life before all of this happened. What was it like growing up as a little boy? What was your aspirations? What did you think life would be like? Wow. Sure. I think um, like so many little boys, I wanted to be a game ranger. So much for that, right? Um, but I, I battled when I was a kid because I was this really geeky kid with these very big, thick um, glasses, I had braces, and I never really fitted in. Uh, very uh, conservative upbringing. I think if you look at that normal trajectory, my mom is a teacher, my dad's engineer, and you know, son, this is this is what your life is going to look like. This is what you need to go and study, and these are the good things to do and the bad things to do. And I didn't really ever fit into that paradigm of thinking. So. It was hard for me to look at a future and figure out, but I didn't take the conventional approach that much I can tell you. It's been a very <laughs> unconventional um, life. I've done so many different things and it's all been unexpected. I'm not one of those people who had a, a life path set out and somehow landed up there and looked back and, okay, that, that's exactly how I expected it to be, you know. Um, that wasn't me at all. 
So I think when Kensick first came in, it was just another one of those instances of, oh my goodness, I didn't see that coming. And wow, you know, how are we going to deal with that? So that, that's quite interesting. First of, all, first of all, you mentioned the fact that you always felt like you never fitted in. And I think so many of us can relate to that because we all feel like outsiders. Um, recently, I interviewed Karen Zoit, and um, one of the things that she said is like, she never felt like she fitted in, but that means you can fit in anywhere, right? Um, like Dr. Seuss. And it's so, so true. And I think um, just looking at the situation, so I think before further ado, I mean, like, let's just jump in. You got diagnosed with cancer. When did you realize something was up, something's wrong? How did you hear the news? Paint the picture of that day, the moment when you found out. So I'm going to go back 12 years before then. So the first time I found out about a tumor on my pituitary gland was when my ex-wife and I were trying to fall pregnant. And I think like most of us, we've got this idea from when we're quite young, uh, we worried about contraception and about how easily you fall pregnant, you know, be careful, mm. son. And that didn't happen. So we literally, we were in treatment for over a year and a half, uh, fertility treatment. And, and that's where I found out that um, I had this little tumor and it, it was secreting way too much prolactin. It's something I knew nothing about. It's what a, a lactating woman needs pituitary to produce and able to feed her child. So, you know, a man doesn't need that stuff. And But we were able to control this. So at that point in time, it was quite a big scare, but it was fine. But in 2016, that's when I really found out that things were really worried about the fact that this, this tumor was out of control and the symptoms were out of control and it wasn't re uh, responding to medication. Uh, and that was the first time that I heard brain cancer and Richard Wright in the first, in the same sentence. But I was determined that I didn't have this and I still went and completed a full Ironman event, kind of thinking that if I could do that, surely I didn't have brain cancer. But five days later, I found myself in brain surgeons' offices or clinic and having a lumbar puncture and the results were rushed back and it was the first time I found out that actually I did have brain cancer. It, it's impossible to be able to explain what that feels like, the rush of emotions that go through you, the, the instant dread, the the scrambling within your brain trying to figure out okay how do I even mm. accept this let alone figure out what's going to happen and fortunately for me I was rushed into theater so extremely extremely rare and aggressive form of cancer that literally nobody recovers from and off we went into theater so I think that was that was a real blessing in disguise it was a case of okay you've got this but we're going to go and do something about it uh, and I'm the typical man uh, you know, fix it. Uh, we need to fix things. If, if there's an emotional problem, you fix it. If there's, and we're going to fix it by doing this thing. You know, we need to be able to do something about this, you know, typical guy. Um, so that was quite cool. During the first time when you found out that you got cancer, a few things played off in your marriage. And I think this is something that's, that's really profound. It's like you really make yourself vulnerable in, in this book. And you talk about the affairs. So... Take us through through that process of your life and then this happening and the fears that you faced during that moment. So, so what, in writing the book, I didn't want it to be uh, just an autobiography. I didn't want it to be a cancer story. I didn't want it to be a self-help book. Um, mm. I really wanted to try and write something that almost every person on this planet is going to be able to relate to in one way or another. And, and I think that's... So, so that quote that you read out in the beginning, we walk naked, and really did feel like that to me. Uh, so I've also, I wrote a book, essentially it's for my two little girls. So I'm divorced now, we'll get to the affairs now, but I am divorced. And my biggest fear is leaving my two little girls with, without a dad. So throughout this cancer process, I've never feared dying, but I have, my biggest fear is leaving my two girls. So, so mm. it's a book for them. It's a book that one day when they're old enough, they will read. And I really hope that it helps them in their life, helps them to confront their things and 
I think our job as parents is to create a platform for our kids so that they can become better human beings than we ever could possibly be. And if I've got that right, then amazing. So a part of the affairs is also being completely, completely authentic and vulnerable and admitting mistakes. So it was about two years before, a year and a half before cancer first came in that, a little bit longer, that I just was desperately unhappy in a marriage and asked my wife and you know if we could go to marriage counseling. And there wasn't anything really wrong. We were best friends, but I was never really in love with her, which is a, it's a hard thing to say now. And people might think, well, what on earth did you do? And I think like a lot of people, you end up settling. You've got this idea of what it should be and what love should be. And, and we, we had a great life. We were best friends. And you know, I think in massive insecurity going back to my childhood that maybe uh, you know this is the best for me. Yeah? Maybe I don't deserve any anymore. Maybe this idea of love and this perfect woman for me actually doesn't exist. And and and, and it's easy to go back and have a look at all that that stuff. We certainly, when we're in it, we, we never think like that, do we? So there's this idea of 2020 looking back. Although we'll never we'll never use the term 2020 the same way ever again <laughs> after this year. <laughs> like, so, don't even go there. Don't go there. <laughs> The whole thing imploded. So along came this woman and, and nobody ever gets up in the morning and says, you know, come today is, I think it's a good day to have an affair. You know, I think I should. Just, <laughs> just, why not? The, the weather's great. You know, it's spring, but not spring because it's freezing. And, and, and so it happened. And, and I guess it was the first time in many, many years I felt wanted and acknowledged and respected and recognized and sexy and all those things we really want to feel and so that yeah mistake absolutely if we look back now but but yet was it because if it hadn't been for that catalyst maybe I'd still be there in a very unhappy marriage and my two girls would be a victim of a very unhappy marriage I don't know Mm. so going through all of the you know the cancer the first time I was single I had been single for, for a while literally the cancer came in six years after the divorce and that was hard it was hard going through this thing on my own but mm. I guess that's part of the journey. It, it really forced me to confront things. And I love what you mentioned just now about the identity and about who we are, because the book is a lot about that. It's a lot about unraveling and, and unbecoming. Because we do, we spend so much of our lives, and I like what you said about Corin Zoid, about you could become anything. And I did. I'm, I'm extremely adept and really good at becoming whatever I need to become to get the best out of other people, this, you know, social chameleon. And we learn that because inevitably people like, like myself are that insecure that you need to become whoever you need to become on the outside. But when somebody tells you that you've got six months left on this planet, all of a sudden you don't need to be anything for anybody. And it's kind of, well, stuff that. I'm done with that now. Mm. I'm going to be the most authentic version of myself. In fact, you even look at your friends and figure, you know, if I've got six months left, who do I want to spend my time with? Do I want to spend time with people who I'm just trying to impress or people that are in my life because of something that they can do for me or, or people that Facebook tells me are my friends or people I went to school with? And no, I want to spend time with people who are my tribe. So in as much as we, we do all the things, if you, if you cast your mind back to when you were a kid, what were the things that you had to become so that your parents patted you on the head and said, good girl, good boy, you know, when you do that, we love you. We, we love that about you. you. Oh, wow. And what were mm. those things where you, you did something and your parents said, we don't even want to see you. Go to your bedroom, close the door. You know, don't come out because, you know, we, we, that's not who we are in this house. And, and that's not what we're about. You know, what was that stuff for you? So you do from, from a very early age, we become all the things that we, our parents want us to become. And then we go to school and then we go to varsity and then we're trying to attract a significant other into our, into our lives. And, 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 but yet yeah, that's the balls up in, in that 
we're trying to become all these things, but yet we're looking for that one person who sees underneath all the BS and loves us anyway. It's so true what you're saying. I mean, I'm just getting a bit personal here. So I started during lockdown, I started therapy for the first time in my life. And that has been a profound moment for me having a conversation. I'm obviously lockdown is just like things are just like, just get, you know, I need people to, to get my energy from and, and just working in digital reading. So, so for example, uh, one of my big clients, we do have a lot of social listening and reading 10,000 messages a day on people's mindsets messes with you. It really, you can't help not to absorb it. And I must tell you, therapy for me is probably one of the most profound things. And, and when I read through your book, there was something that really struck me and I really want to go there, but if you're not comfortable to go there, that's fine. Um, I'll go anywhere. <laughs> I'm totally comfortable. Your therapist said something really profound. Actually, I underlined it and it said, my therapist said something profound and true. She said that every relationship ends up with a third party. That third party might be a hobby, work, sports, substance abuse, money, kids, or it might be another person. Those aren't the reasons the relationship failed. The relationship had already failed. And I read that and, you know, I was just thinking of so many marriages and so many people going through these tumultuous times and and you know we are hearing so many people that are are, are divorcing because of lockdown and realizing this person's not meant for me i'm um, off you spend quite a lot of time with them and um this was a very profound um thing i've never thought about it that way how did you feel when you heard it relief uh, it was a massive relief and the reason for that is because i beat myself up i'm um, obviously in my ex-wife's mind and still now um 11 years later after the affair if you had to ask her, in fact, in fact, comment if you had a conversation with her uh, within the first half an hour of your conversation from not meeting her ever before, you would find out about this, this cheating, lying bastard ex-husband who mm. cheated on her. And that's the reason why she's no longer married. Um, so, so a real victim mentality, which is her stuff, unfortunately. But because of that, um, obviously, I mean, even since then, I've been beaten with that stick. And at that time, especially, it was this real the spectacular downfall of Richard Wright. So here was this guy who'd always been, you know, the good boy, who'd always, who's a pillar of the community, who, who when people met me would, or met my ex-wife as well, and both of us would say, wow, does he not have a brother? You know, just, just and, and all of a sudden, wow, look at him, spectacular downfall. So it was something that, that was the reason I landed up in therapy for the first, in, in the first instance, in, in that I really battled to deal with this. I, I beat myself up. It was really hard to accept that I'd done something so spectacularly bad in my mind that had caused the relationship to to fail, and I'd failed my two little girls, and I'd, I'd you know failed my my wife, and that was hard. So when I heard that, I'll just mention the preceding conversation was literally I was there for for a year, and I would be in tears so often and say, can you please tell me, am I a bad person? I, I need mm -hmm. you. In fact, you've got to know me better than almost anybody else. You're the professional. This is what you do. You can see through me. You can see through anything. You know, I'm very aware that it doesn't matter what I say, you know, I'm not going to fool you. I need you to tell me whether you think I'm a bad person. And she refused to, to give me that out. And she said, no, that's why you're here. You know, you need to figure that stuff out for yourself. And, you know, I, I can answer that question, but actually it's not, you know, it's not going to help anything you need to answer within yourself. 
And eventually, after months of this, she said to me, okay, this I will tell you is you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be asking these questions if you were a bad person. You know, if you, if you are a truly bad person, it, you wouldn't, it wouldn't worry you and you wouldn't be here. And that's when we had the conversation about the catalyst. And so there was massive relief. And, and for me, a huge relief, but you know, it still doesn't change anything from ex-wife's point of view. And as I say, it's, it's taken many years for me to understand that that is her stuff. And one day she might accept that there, there were two of us in the marriage and, you know, it was the marriage failed. And there are lots of reasons for that. And, you know, and I left that out of the book. In fact, what's quite weird is that that chapter two, I wrote it and it was quite a lot longer and it was a lot more honest. And it beat me up to it. It was a very, very, I think, objective view as much as possible of what happened with both of us and both of our stuff. Mm. Um, and then I got a couple of people to read it. And, and it was, and I kind of thought of my, my, my girls reading it, although it's nothing I don't know. Um, and I just thought, no, it doesn't belong there. Yeah, you know, she just wrote in there that if, if she had to write her own book, her story might be different. And, and that's what it is, I guess, is that two different stories. And then there's a third story. And that's more the truth than anything else. It's not subjective. But it, it's true. And, and since then, the number of relationships and the number of conversations I've had with people who've been in similar positions, and it really is true. As soon as there's one of those other catalysts, whether it's somebody obsessed with work, whether it's a hobby, whether, and from an Ironman point of view, I see that. I see these men and women who come in at 40, 45 and all of a sudden want to you know, <laughs> lose a lot of weight, put on this <laughs> tight lycra. And the next minute there's a girlfriend or boyfriend and, you know, they're doing these events and, and that is part of it. It's part of that whole cycle, but that, that's never going to happen in a happy marriage. Never. Just doesn't happen. And I mean, this is, this is why it was so profound for me because I mean, like during lockdown or even still, I think more so than ever, I work 18 hours a day. I really have a hectic schedule. Um, now I'm studying as well. Turns out it's not as easy as I thought it's going to be. I, it turns out I knew nothing at all. But also, I'm dealing with, um, you know, I'm just going to go back there with, in terms of therapy. Dealing with, with my therapist is like going back into my past, my childhood, and my toxic family, the drama triangle, and how you can't be responsible for somebody else's feelings, and how you have to take accountability for your own. And I think reading this it was just such a profound moment it's like third party is not necessarily a person it can be anything and it kind of like sends up those flags it's like a big aha moment yeah you know no it is and, and kudos to you for doing that I, I firmly believe that every single one of us at some point in time in our lives needs to spend at least a, a year in therapy um whether you think there's something wrong with you don't it's just such an incredible thing to do from an introspective point of view growth evolving um, and going back to the childhood, because as I say, you know, we become, we are so conditioned to be what we've been curated to be. And if, and if you're wanting to evolve and become better human beings, we've got to undo some of that stuff. So what you're doing is magnificent and good for you. It's hard. I mean, let's be honest. Um, and also going back to those feelings of what you felt like when you were a little girl and why did you feel like that? And, and, and only when you feel that again, can you start to deal with it uh, with your adult self. So yeah, it is, it's a, it's an amazing thing to do. So part of my therapy throughout the cancer was going to somebody and saying, I don't want to talk about the cancer. I, I want to talk about the possible psychosomatic causes of this thing. Cause there's no known cancer, it's unknown, the cause. And maybe this is something to do with my past. And, and she was delighted. And I had to find somebody pretty smart because I've been in therapy a number of times and you kind of understand what to say to somebody because you know what you're going to get on the other side. And, and she, 
she saw me coming and it was amazing actually she had my number and uh, that was great <laughs> it was hard I used to dread some of the sessions but it was really good really really no good. It's, it, it, it really is fantastic and and the reason I brought it up is I think that's where your rebirth happens where all the layers are cracked open and your authenticity almost starts blooming it's like when you're honest with yourself, you're honest with your history, and you're actually really introspecting, that's when you can truly be authentic. And I think that's where you, you refer to in your book is, are you truly authentic to the person deep inside of you? You know, the one that very few ever get to see and know. And that's, that's the big moment. And I think that this is where the whole journey of the book goes, is where you really, really go there. So, so you have to, because, because, uh, you know, the power of purpose. And, and when you understand who you are, I think it's only when you really understand who you are and, and you, you delve underneath all those layers, all the BS that you actually tell yourself as much as you tell other people, that you really can uncover this idea of your own happiness, your, your purpose where, you know, what, what makes me feel like I have meaning. So that is a very big thrust of the book is understanding that despite feeling like you're going to die from cancer, despite feeling like you, or wrapping up your life and you, you in this real pit of very dark despair, you can still be happy. Um, mm. it, it, you know, happiness isn't around overcoming cancer, although, you know, wouldn't that be fabulous? But it, it, it isn't a finish line. There isn't this idea of, Carmen, when you, when you finish your studies, you will be happy. You know, if you aren't happy, as much as you are, you're learning how little you know, and as hard as this is, and fitting it into an 18-hour <laughs> day, if you're not happy doing the actual studying bit and the learning and happy understanding how little you know, then you shouldn't be doing it. You know, that, that should be part and parcel of this thing. Otherwise, you get to that finish, you get the degree or whatever it is, and you're like, oh, yay. And then you hit the post-degree blues where it's like, oh, my goodness, my, my life has got no meaning because I spent so much time trying to fixate on this moment. And there it is. And, okay, what now? The journey. It's about the journey. And it's about... Mm. And that's part of, that's the unbecoming. It's being that attuned and aware of who you are as a human being, not what you are, but who you are, why you are, that you can truly exist in a moment and be happy despite everything else. And COVID's been big along, you know, it, it's exacerbated everything. It's, it's brought out and made everything bigger than it is. So relationships, no wonder they're imploding. I just imagine that last year of my marriage, if that had been this year and living with this person and we were so at each other and, and acerbic and disgustingly vile to each other, how that would have been under lockdown, you know? Wow. And then that took away my red wine as well, you know? And they took our kids back to school and then, then gave them back again. And then just after they gave them back, they took away the wine again. It's like, wow, you're messing with me, you know? <laughs> so true. You sound like me. <laughs> <laughs> so everything is compounded. It's completely compounded. And what a brilliant opportunity to delve down and figure out, okay, hold on two seconds. What makes me feel happy in the, in the midst of all of this? And yes, I might have lost my job or I might have taken a big pay cut or I don't know what, what the market's going to look like mm. when I return or the economy or politics or whatever else. But despite all of that, is there perhaps something in my life that makes me feel truly happy? Mm. That's a big question. I love what you're saying there because it's it's so true. I think if one thing 
what COVID did was it taught us to be resilient in any shape or form. You obviously had the privilege, and I call it the privilege, to to practice this resilience. For a lot of people, that's a very brand new thing. Um, being complacent for for many years in their lives and being faced with with something they never expected and having to find a way to fight and going upstream. Resilience is 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 a big thing. The the Navy SEALs. They, for example, do the, these meditation, visualization, like they have this big routine that they do in their lives in order for them to be actually fit to go out um, on a mission. If you can learn anything about resilience, it's from the SEALs. And um, I think also with, with you, I'm going through having cancer three times. And also, if I might mention, stage four is a death sentence. Stage two, you like, there's hope. Stage three, you're like, I can still be optimistic, but stage four is almost like, okay. And, and you, you refuse to, to settle. You just went, okay, cool. I'm, I'm going to fight this thing. And you said in, in, in parts of the book, you said, cancer fucks with your head. And if you go, if you go back and you, and you look at this, they call it psychological capital. So positive psychological capital is resilience. It's confidence. It's optimism and hope. And when you have to go through this kind of thing, it's very difficult to activate that. You have to dig deep. So I was extremely lucky that I've had such a long history and endurance sport and especially cycling. I've spent hours and hours and hours on the bike. In fact, I'd love to try and work out how many thousands of hours and most of it on my own. <laughs> um, and that's been amazing. And that is part of it. Some of you said just now that you know, we, we become complacent in terms of our ability to be resilient or we're not able to. I, I think... You know, we need to remind ourselves how resilient we actually are and, and how we are born resilient and how, you know, out of, out of a possible five homo species that have ever inhabited this planet, we're the only ones to survive and thrive so well that we're destroying everything else. Um, <laughs> and and that, that is because we're a flight or fight response animal, which we are. And our first response, our pure, prehistoric brain is a flight or fight. So anything that changes in your life and with COVID-19 or with any of what we've been through this year, those changes elicit that same response. And mm. either we're going to fight this or we're going to flee and run and hide. And I think for many of us, it's, it's we can't fight something we can't see. So how do I fight this virus that I don't even have, but yet I'm a victim of, which is big. I'm a victim sure. of something that has completely turned my life upside down, has disrupted my life. And... I'm a victim of it. My freedoms have been removed. I'm not allowed to go outside my house. I can't exercise. I can't go to work. I can't, you know, all of these things that are so heavily disrupted, but yet I can't actually fight this thing because it's not something that is in me or around me. I don't have it, or hopefully I don't. It, it's it's a, our government's response to this pandemic. So that makes us victims. And at that point in time, it's saying, okay, so either I can fight against the idea and the obstacles as I see them. And that's what most of us have done. We, we, we became a keyboard warriors and we hit social media with this, ah, oh, the government this and ah, oh, the minister of this and Lumini Zuma that and, 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 you know, fighting this and, and who's going to look after me and then fighting the tourist system and then the, ah, oh, UIF. And it was, it was, that's what we do. We, we, and then we look at everybody else doing the same. You see, everybody's doing, yes, you see, I'm not alone. And that makes us feel that we're joining some kind of COVID army against who, you know? And if that was your response, good luck to you. Because, you know, we are what we think. And you're going to just get more of that angst and negativity. Or the other more healthy response is to, to say, okay, 
control the controllables. I cannot control those things. Mm. And as much as I try, I'm becoming more of a, the more I th- I'm fight them, the more of a victim of those things I'm becoming. So the only thing I really can do is figure out what are the things I have got 100% control over. And if you think about it, Carmen, the only thing we've got 100% control over in our lives is the stuff we think, our thoughts. When we learn to control that, then everything changes. And and I learned that there's no time in my life I had a better opportunity to learn that than trying to fight cancer. Because again, this, this thing is in my brain. I've got terminal brain cancer, but yet I can't see it. Um, and I need to control my brain to overcome the brain cancer. It was quite mm. a weird way to look at things. But just to get back very quickly to resilience, um, when you learned to walk, Carmen, you became resilient AF. There's no time in your life you're more resilient. <laughs> Why? Because you, you, you try to stand up and you, and you teetered on your little toes. And, and then the next minute you, bah, you fell down. It's like, Wah! and then you hurt yourself because it was sore. And as, yeah. as much as little toddlers are rubbery, we made rubbery. Um, so we don't break too easily because of this, <laughs> because we have to be resilient. You got up and you did it again, despite the tears. And here's the coolest part is your parents, as much as you just said, you know, dysfunctional home, they still were great parents. And they said, Carmen, well done. And they clapped you like, yay. And then they called their friends and said, look, 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 she's trying to walk. Isn't she amazing? But you just fell down. In other words, they were celebrating your failure and Mm. you failed. Your ass failed dismally for months Mm. before Mm. you actually figured out how to totter from one side of the the wall to uh, the room to the other. Over and over and over again. Imagine if today's Carmen went through that. And, and Carmen, you know, for the first time you fell down your ass, it was like, okay, that wasn't cool. Do you know, walking's not for everybody. I'm not going to do that again. Mm. I'm not happening. Mm. But you didn't. So we, are, we all intrinsically have this thing that's called resilience, the ability to move through failure and to learn through failure, because that's actually the only way we learn anything is by failing. And we've heard so, and so many business books on that. But yet it's true. Anything you've ever learned in your life, you've learned by failing at it. So mm. it's not like we don't have it. It's not like some of us are resilient and some of us aren't. We just need to, again, cut through all the bullshit to figure out how we need to think differently. Because, yeah. you know, we can't unlearn something. And when we hear something for the first time, our lives are forever changed as a result of that thing. We can't go and unlearn it. So, again, like you're learning new things now and you're learning how much you don't know about certain topics, others you know lots about. You can't unlearn the fact that you now don't know stuff. You, you, you're in that place. You, know, you can just reorganize it, it. I think it's it's about or like reorganizing, it. yeah, and reframing the the information. I think one of the most profound things for me is stretching your mind. If you stretch your mind, you can never go back to the old dimensions. You know, you you always need to to get uncomfortable because beyond that, I I explained it um the other day. It's almost like climbing a mountain without tools. It just seems impossible, but when you start getting the tools in life. You can get on top of that mountain. It's going to be difficult. It's not going to happen easily. But through climbing that mountain with the right tools, you're going to get there. And I think that we don't practice our gifts of, of resilience. We don't practice, you know, getting through stuff. If you look at the, the age of the Renaissance era, they had the Black Death. One in three people died. A third of the, the world just gone. People inherited money, they stayed at home, they read a lot of books, and it was the age of invention, the new world was born. So 
I think that's also a part of why I think we like to fear a lot is because we don't understand history. You have to have an understanding of history and pay attention to the present in order to understand where the future is going. If you look at Sarah Blakely, she started the Spanx company. She said that in the evenings, her dad used to sit them around the table and he used to ask them one question, not what did you do today? It was, what did you fail at today? That was wow. the question. And, and, and I think if you can't answer that question in your life every single day, like if I had to ask you now, what is the biggest thing that you failed at last week? What would it be? Um, the biggest thing I failed at is I've been, I've got really, really busy from a speaking point of view. And I've been really lucky to have a lot of gigs lined up because I did all the right things right at the beginning of lockdown. And I failed at, uh, going back to the beginning, which is creating, you know, there's that funnel from a sales point of view, putting the stuff in the top. And all of a sudden now it's gone quiet and nothing's dropping down the bottom because I haven't been putting stuff in back in the top. So, uh, that's, a, that's an easy one for me. And I'm beating myself up. But, but again, you know, today have I done, have I made any of those calls yet? No, I haven't. So, you know, it, it's why. So let's go back to that mountain climbing. And I love that. It's a great analogy. So, Firstly, that, that quote, Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, a person's mind wrapped around a new idea can never return to its original dimension. So, so, so yes, but what, what gets some people to say, okay, I want to climb this mountain and I'm going to get there or the other people to say, no, I'm scared. I've got fear. And because of my fears of heights or my fear of climbing this thing without tools, I'm not going to do it. And that's purpose. So essentially, unless climbing the mountain means that much to you, it's, it's this sense of this is something that I want so badly that I'm prepared to overcome anything, push through anything that fear is going to overwhelm you. So, so that's an important distinction to make. Not everybody's going to get to the top of the mountain. And if it was easy, everybody would do it. And it's not easy. Only the people that really, really want to and are prepared to go through what it takes are going to make it to the top of the mountain. So that's incredibly important. This idea of change, we all want to change things about ourselves. We all want to change things about our lives. But yet so few of us actually do anything about it. We get stuck in a dead-end relationship. We get stuck in a dead-end job. We get stuck wherever it is because somehow, you know, in, in somewhere or other, as much as it's uncomfortable, the, the level of discomfort isn't big enough to make us do anything. And that's really what it is about. Unless you're, until you get to that point where you're really uncomfortable, you don't change anything. And until you get to the point where you change what you think, nothing's going to change. Because we try and change things by changing our actions and our behavior. So let's go back to my example. I haven't, I still haven't phoned people and started to get in touch with people to say, hey, can I help you? Hey, can I help you? Um, you know, I know your team is not so really struggling at this point in time. How can I help? And, and that's all it really is, is those conversations. And I haven't done that. Why? Well, the, the level of discomfort isn't high enough. Why? Because the payments are still coming in from the gigs I did in the last couple of weeks. So I haven't got to the point where I'm looking at my partner, Deborah, and saying, we've got to pay school fees next month. Where's the money coming from? <laughs> and maybe that's the level of discomfort. But why do we have to get to that point? Because you know, it's got to get that bad. But that's human nature, right? But until we can change our thinking and... If you want to change something, my advice is get to that place where that feeling, how's it going to feel? Why is it that important that I stand on top of this mountain? What is mm. that about? What is that going to change within me? If I get to the top of the mountain, I'm going to feel this or whatever. What is it about the journey? And so for me, it was stage four brain cancer, being told that I'm terminal, I'm dying from this thing. Me saying, no, 
I, I'm going to get to the finish line of a full Ironman with stage four brain cancer. Why? Because if I can do that, I can mm. beat the thoughts in my head and I can beat brain cancer. If I can do that, I'm proving to my two little girls that their dad is going to be fine. That It meant that much to me that despite every single one of my specialists and surgeons saying, no, don't go and do that. We don't advise that. That's stupid. My my friends, my family saying, Richard, please don't do that. You can nothing to prove to yourself, to anybody. It's like, no, it's not about anybody. It's about me and about what this thing means for me and what it does within me when I get to that finish line. So, so what is that? And when we tap into that, that is the power of purpose. Having a purpose that, you know, if you're going to look at those people who do out-of-the-box things, why? Because it meant so much. They wanted it so badly. Uh, what is that thing? Find that um, and see how, how your life changes. I love that. I'm so sad. Our time has come to an end. I really enjoyed chatting to you. So the big question is, where can people find your book? It's available in all good bookstores, exclusive books, readers' warehouses, and it's on Amazon as a Kindle version. Um, or if you'd like a signed copy, then I'd be delighted to do that for you. And www.iamrichardwright with a w.com. Go and find it on store there and we'll get it to you with pleasure. That's amazing. And also you said you, you speak. So um, if people want you to, to come do some motivational speaking, can they reach you there as well? Absolutely. So I hate the term motivational speaker or even inspirational speaker. So I actually call myself a bit weird, but a transformative storyteller. And that's I all I that. really do. Yeah. So all I do is tell my story. And again, they're the thoughts. If me telling my story and you reading the book, there's something that makes you think a little bit differently. You are forever changed and you are transformed. And that's all I really do. So the power is within you. And all I can really be is that vessel. Um, so the book really is the vessel that holds my vulnerability, I guess. <laughs> it's that. I have to tell you that I'm big into storytelling and that's what I love about your um, way of writing. It's very much like a story. You get immersed into it very easily where some books you just like, oh, can I just get to the next chapter? And it's really a very easy read and a beautiful story and a story of resilience and i just want to say i have much respect for you and your journey and keep on going and i hope to see you out there once we're all allowed to go out and actually live a normal life properly i'd love that thank you so, so much <laughs> all right have a good one bye-bye now you've been listening to the carmen murray show another solid gold podcast Please take a moment to rate and share this episode with friends and colleagues who love customer experience and marketing just as much as you do. To connect with Carmen, visit CarmenMurray.com, where you will find links to her business services, future fit events, and biz community articles. Carmen Murray is CEO of Booyah Modern Marketing Services that empower businesses to deliver premium customer experiences, B2B, B2C and B2B2C across all industries. Some of these services include research, CX strategy, persona development and customer journey mapping, CX audits, UX audits, and the connected marketer training in connected customer experiences, mobile, data management, and AI. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.